Amen. I hope you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, and then also turn to Ezra 7. Ezra 7 will be our primary text. We're going to start with Matthew 5, though, beginning with verse 3. And if you have those pew Bibles, those black Bibles in front of you, Matthew 5 is on page 802, and Ezra 7 is on 398. Just hold Ezra 7, if you would, and let's look at Matthew 5. And I want to begin with those uh, words from that great theologian, Alan Jackson, who said, where were you when the world stopped turning? You remember 20 years ago where you were? I was thinking about this as Eric was leading us in worship. Eric was probably like in the third grade when that happened, right, Eric? This is the first time in uh, almost 30 years of ministry I've had a youth pastor. I was old enough to be his daddy. And so when we think about our ages, we think about where we were. I was an adult 30 or 20 years ago, and I can remember the specific place. Can you? You remember it's one of those events. If you lived long enough to, to be alive or you were old enough to be alive when JFK was shot, you know where you were when JFK was shot. Those are those kind of events or when the space shuttle exploded or when 9-11 happened. You know where you were because it was one of those events that changed our world, especially if you fly on an airline, you know that event changed the way we do things um, at airports anymore. We think about the things that change our, our world, and we think about how we can be used by God to change the world. Now, that's a huge task. I understand that. But changing the world really begins by changing your world and begins by you changing to be the kind of people, all of us, be the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so we're looking today at the hand of the Lord upon a guy named Ezra. I've never preached from the book of Ezra. And so today we're going to do that, and we're going to look at a, a kind of an unfamiliar character who was leading God's people back to the promised land. He's kind of a new a Moses or a new Aaron. His is kind of his role. He is the spiritual leader who is leading the people of God from exile, remember they went into exile from the, because of the Babylonians. As we looked at the book of Daniel, we learned about all of that. And King Nebuchadnezzar. And after Nebuchadnezzar came the Medes and the Persians and Cyrus and Darius. And, and now we get to a guy named Artaxerxes who's sending Ezra back. Cyrus started sending people back to the promised land to restore the land that God had promised his people. There's a new day coming. But in the midst of that, we see how God does what he does and how God places his hand upon an individual, Ezra. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want the hand of God upon me in this way, a good, gracious hand of God. Because we look at that and we'll define that as, as God's blessing, as God's favor, as God's power upon us whatever we do don't we want to make sure that what we're doing is in line with what God wants us to do with his his will his purposes as his people we know that's why he has left us here that's why he has designed us to be a part of his family part of his kingdom and to extend and expand that kingdom and yet we don't often live that way moment to moment day by day there is something more, there's something bigger than the mundane things that we face every day. And we're going to look at how we can have the power and the courage to do what God has 
given before us, the task at hand, so to speak, the, the everyday living. But before we get there, we've got to see the kind of life that God blesses. And that's where I want us to start in Matthew 5. And just look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and remind ourselves of what he has blessed and how he has blessed. Because we think about a blessed life when we think about health and wealth and prosperity. But that's not what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he says these words in verse 3, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. He says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. Other translations would say spiritually bankrupt. The end of the rope. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn. For they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble. For they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful. For they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. For they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace. For they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Is that what we see in our culture? Those kind of people that God blesses. Is that who we are as his people? Are we constantly at odds with one another or constantly looking who's going to be our next enemy? Are we constantly seeking God's peace and seeking God's kingdom and seeking to extend God's love and grace and mercy. And so we want to be those kind of people that God has his hand upon. Because there's always been situations that arise in our country, in the history of our country. Do you realize that? Most of us don't spend enough time looking back at, at history to know that we can learn from what's gone on so that we can prepare for what's ahead. And when we think about the founding of our country and the 1770s, 1776 or so, we forget that there was a, a moral dilemma going on in our world. We don't even maybe realize that there was a need for a great awakening. And we understand that through a guy like Jonathan Edwards who preached a, a sermon that you might have had to study in American literature, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God used that sermon in 1741 to convict people and really help bring about the American Revolution because it helped people realize that it's not the government's responsibility to take care of individuals. It's in, individuals looking to God for their providence and their care, their providential care. And so as we think about what's going on, I just want to share a portion of that to begin with from Jonathan Edwards' A sermon. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a very boring preacher. I know that. What, are you laughing because I'm a boring preacher? Or okay. he, read, he read his sermon, and he, he had no expression. And so just hear this, because God used the words that he spoke and anointed them 
to bring about a great awakening and revival in our country and turn the people's hearts back toward God. He said things like this. Here's, here's just a portion. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It's a great furnace of wrath and a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of the saved or to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you'll ever or you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict, sober and religious, they may otherwise be. See, what he presents in that sermon is the hand of God holding an individual over hell and it's only the good pleasure of God that keeps them from the eternal flames of hell. We're going to read a portion of the end of that sermon at the end of this sermon today. But there was a, a, a stirring and a realization that things were not as they should be as he preached about hell, really. In our day, Let's think about this for just a moment. Our children, our youth, not our children, but our, our young people on Wednesday night are going through the book of Romans. In Romans 1, it talks about the downfall of society. What happens when a nation begins to worship creation instead of the creator? And it has these kind of indications that that's going on. There's sexual promiscuity everywhere. Children are disobeying their parents, and it is widely accepted in society. And, and homosexual, homosexuality is openly accepted. Does that sound? Now, this is Romans. This is the first century. This is three or four hundred years before the fall of the Roman Empire that the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, is writing those words. And yet we see some indication going on in our world. I mean, things are weird around here. Do you not sense this great sense of, of grief and, and great sense of urgency and a great sense of opportunity in our days? And so what do we do about it? How do we change things? We let God change us again. And we see it in Ezra. So I want you to turn to Ezra. Because he's a, in the context again is about he's about to go back to the promised land and God's hand, his hand of blessing, his good and gracious hand, not the hand that Jonathan Edwards preaches about, the, the hand that has holds the sinners in the hands of an angry God, but the gracious good hand of God. Would you stand and honor the reading of God's holy word in Ezra 7 beginning with verse 6. This Ezra was a scribe who was well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for. 
Because the gracious hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. That's repeated six times in chapter 7 and 8 of Ezra. The gracious hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And some of the, the people of Israel, as well as some of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, all the folks that ministered in the temple, the temple servants, traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes reign. This is about 458 B.C., 500 years before the cross. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year, and he had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8th, the, the first day of the new year, and he arrived in Jerusalem on August 4th. So almost four months from Babylon, the city of Babylon, to the city of Jerusalem for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Now, verse 27, after Artaxerxes sends a letter to Ezra granting him all of what he asked for, verse 27 says, Praise the Lord, the God of our ancestors who made the king want to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and praise him for demonstrating such unfailing love to me by honoring me before the king, his council, and his mighty nobles. I have felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered some of the leaders of Israel to return with me to Jerusalem. Father, Teach us from your word. Lord, teach us from Ezra. What we are to do and who we are to be and how we know that your hand is upon us. Because that's what we want, Lord. We submit ourselves to you right now. As people who claim your name, as people who call ourselves Christians, as people who are followers of Jesus in this place, help us do things your way. May your hand, your gracious hand, be upon us as we do. In your holy name we pray. Jesus, amen. You may be seated as we look for evidence that the hand of the Lord is on you first. We want to see in this passage the first indication that God's hand is upon you is answered prayer. Why would you pray? Why do we pray? I would submit before you today the main reason we pray is to make sure that our wills line up with His will. We're not using prayer as a, an opportunity to get what we want. We don't pray, my will be done. We don't just say things like, Lord, Bless me, protect me, give me, heal me, help me for my sake. But we say, Lord, protect me and bless me and use me, forgive me for your sake. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we've got to get that in line. As we look at Ezra's story, we see that Ezra was, was a scribe who was well-versed in the Scripture. We'll talk about that in the law of Moses in just a moment. Verse 6 which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. 
And he came to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king, which is Artaxerxes, gave him everything he asked for. Because the gracious hand of the Lord was on him. Now, this is no small thing. Artaxerxes in chapter 4 of Ezra had decided to stop the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the temple that the people of God who were in exile were coming back to do. He had stopped doing that because his advisors had said, hey, if you do that, that's to your disadvantage because they're going to have a walled city and they're not going to pay taxes or tribute to you anymore. And so he said, let's, let's stop all of that. But then he begins to investigate what uh, one of his predecessors as a, a Persian king had, had proclaimed and the law of the people. Uh, the Medes and the Persians could not be repelled. We see that from the book of, of Daniel that we studied a, a while back. You remember? And so as we think about what Darius had said, Darius said anybody who does not honor the one true God will, be, will have a, a beam removed from their house and they will be impaled upon it. And so that obviously got Artaxerxes' attention and their house would be made a dunghill. Now you know what a dunghill is. Graciously, I could say before you in the simplest way, I'm not going to use a profane kind of statement, but that's a manure pile. And so Artaxerxes says, I don't want my, my family to be destroyed. I don't want my house to be a dunghill. So I, God's got my attention through a previous order of one of, of the kings. And so King Artaxerxes' heart is changed. And as we see what Ezra says, it's the Lord who changes his heart. Proverbs 21 one says that the king's hearts are like a river in the Lord's hand. God uses the, the powers, even pagan powers in the scripture, for his own purposes. God is working a plan. And God answers Ezra's prayer. Now we know from James 5, about verse 17 or so, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much or is, is powerful and effective. How do you know God's hand is upon you? Because when you pray, things happen. God moves. And it's not so much your prayer, but it's you're asking the one true God to do what he already intended to do, and you're lining yourself up with him. See, I think God answers every prayer. You might want to jot this down. God answers every prayer that's offered by his people. Sometimes God says no. Aren't you glad that sometimes God says no? Praise the Lord that God says no. Otherwise, I would be married and divorced and married and divorced to every little junior high girl I had a crush on that I prayed to the Lord that, that they might, he might turn their heart toward me. You're right. Praise the Lord for unanswered prayer God says no when the request is bad sometimes God says slow the request is good but the timing is off you may be praying for something that way you may be praying for some people on your oikos list that way you're asking God to save their souls and God is doing a work in them God is doing something in them to draw their heart toward him. I, I have seen some amazing things, and I'm sure you have too, as you pray for people intentionally and specifically. And you say, Lord, tear down the barriers that keep them from faith. Are you still doing that? 
Are you still seeking the Lord for other individuals? If not, why not? Don't give up doing that because that's crucial to God moving and working in our lives because God doesn't answer prayer on our timetable. God is under no obligation. God is God, and we submit to him and his will. So sometimes God says, slow. Sometimes the request is good, but you're not ready for that to be answered. So God would say, grow. You need some maturity on you. Yes, I want to do that in your life. Yes, I want to bless you in that way. But you're not ready. And then sometimes, and this is what happened in Ezra. Sometimes God says the request is right. The timing is right. It's time to get up and go. Get up and get out of here and do what you're asking me to do and be used by me. Or here it is. Here's what you've been, been requesting. And what Ezra asked of King Artaxerxes is that he gives them safe travel and that he allows them to return to rebuild that temple, that place of worship to God, and to restore the people of God. And, and Artaxerxes not only grants him a request to return, but he decides he's going to finance the whole thing himself. God gives him exceedingly abundantly more than all that Ezra could even ask or imagine. Ezra had no idea. So would you continue to ask God for his kingdom to be advanced in you? It's not just, the world's not just revolving around you and, and your will. But would you ask to for God to show you where you fit into his story and his will. Because that's where you're going to find meaning. That's where you're going to find purpose. That's where you're going to make an eternal difference. That's where you're going to change the world. As God changes the world through you. As he changes you. That's the second thing on your outline. What The evidence is is Ezra was devoted to the Scriptures. And, and so as we look at what's going on, and later on in verses 9 and 10 there, we see, uh, well, Ezra had prayed in, in chapter 8, verse 21, 22, 3. Can we get back to that one screen? I want you to see this from the Scriptures. We prayed that it would, he would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and goods as we traveled, for I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from the enemies along the way. Now, Nehemiah, his uh, contemporary, who was the political leader in the day of Ezra, Ezra being the spiritual leader, had asked for uh, those kind of, that kind of protection. But Ezra is depending solely on God, and he says, I told the king, the hand of our God, here it is again, is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. That's sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the wrath of God. But Ezra is proclaiming the gracious hand of God on all those who seek him. It's the, the ancient seeking that Deuteronomy talks about. If you seek him, you'll find him when you'll search, if you search for him with all your heart. In, a, in the letter to the exiles, Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 29, 13, if you seek me, you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
And so you know the hand of God is upon you when you begin to see answers in prayer because you're seeking them with all your heart. And you do that, you can do that as you understand how the scripture and prayer goes together. If you don't know how to pray, don't know what to pray, then you seek him in the scripture and you pray his word back to him because we know we're praying according to his will when we pray according to his word. And so we begin to claim the promises of God and we see things like, Lord, you've said you've never, you'll never leave me or forsake me. Now, right now, I'm feeling like I'm a little alone. I'm a little discouraged. I'm feeling like you've left me, but I'm claiming that your word has said you will never leave me or forsake me, so I know you haven't forgotten me. And we walk in that kind of faith. So we know the hand is on us when we see those kind of prayers answered, but we also know the hand of God is upon us when we are devoted to Scripture. And that's where we come to chapter 7, the second part of verse 9. Ezra says, For the gracious hand of God was on him. Or it says about Ezra. And then verse 10 says, This was because... So here's some indication. Here's how that happened. Ezra had set his heart, had determined, had devoted himself had committed himself to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Here's the key. You see it? He devotes himself to Scripture. Now, I know this book is intimidating to a lot of folks. And if you've never tried to read it or, or understand any of it, then it's intimidating to start. But can I just give you some wisdom on that? Would you just fall in love with Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to start with? And just start with Mark. You know why I say start with Mark? Because it's the shortest. I like the short books, don't you? And you read about Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark, and you just keep reading about Jesus over and over and over again because... That's what Ezra didn't have the Gospels. Ezra, all he had was the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the Pentateuch. But in that, God revealed himself. You see, what people need and what's going to change our world is Jesus. And we share Jesus with them, and we know Jesus ourselves as he is revealed to us in the Scripture. How else do you know what God is like except seeing him through the person of Jesus Christ? How do you know how God lived and loved and how God cared and sacrificed and how God overcame death and all of the trouble and turmoil we face in life except through Jesus? Let me give you some good word that the Scripture points us toward. And just think about this as Ezra devoted himself to the study of Scripture, and we have much more Scripture written than he did. Remember, this is the day, these were days before Gutenberg and before the printing press and before the New Testament was written, and all he had was those first five books primarily, the Torah to focus on, but we've got much more. Now, can I, can I just focus in on a few words, maybe, maybe ten? Can I give you the word incarnation? Because that's a good word. God comes to be with us. Can I give you the word perfection? Jesus comes to show us how to live. 
He lived perfectly, so we follow his example. We don't follow the example of Ezra, even though that's one of the better examples in Scripture to follow. We follow the example of Jesus, who Ezra ultimately would point us to. And so when we think about uh, the perfection of Jesus, that's a good word. When the third word I want you to share with you is the word uh, propitiation. That's a good word. Say that. Propitiation. I love that word. My kids laugh every time I say it. I don't know if it's propitiation or propitiation, or I just say it propitiation. And then what that means is God's atoning sacrifice for us. Propitiation. That's a good word because that happened through the crucifixion. He took our place on the cross. All our sin, all our thoughts that were evil, all of our actions, all of our unkind words, all of our devastating, tearing down, sort of isolating words and every intention of our heart that's placed upon him on that cross once, once and for all. How amazing, how amazing is our Savior to take it all, how perfect. That's not the only word, though. After crucifixion comes this great word, resurrection. He whipped death. He came back to life to prove all that he said and did and taught. And it did. And as he was resurrected 40 days later, he ascended to the Father, and he's at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you. And now all all of that leads to our salvation which includes our regeneration being born again our sanctification becoming more like Jesus and our glorification one day we're going to be perfect like he is in a perfect place called heaven those are great words those are all in here how do you know about all those good things without the scripture so here's what I want you to do and think about and commit yourself to and devote yourself to because the way you're going to change the world is the same way Ezra did you study And you do what the Scripture says to do. And then you teach other people to do the same thing. That's making disciples. That's sharing our faith. Study, obey, share. There's no other way to change the world. Not for you and me. Maybe not for anybody. God changes us as we do those things. And he changes the world through a grassroots movement of individuals who commit themselves to that. There, is, there are a couple of reading plans out there. They're on bright paper, orange and green. If, you're, if you've never tried to just read the Scripture, I think that's where you've got to start. You've got to read it. And the difference between reading and studying is use a pencil. When God teaches you something, write it down so you can remember it next time. Okay? That's the difference between reading and studying. And then... Maybe memorize some of it so that you can meditate on it and think about it over and over again. But the most important part of all of your commitment to the Scripture is do what you know to do. It's found here. Apply it. That's what it means when it says Ezra was skilled as a scribe. He knew the Word because he was copying it all the time, but he didn't just know it. He had practiced it. That's how you gain a skill. That's how you improve in a skill. And so you do what the Scripture says to do. So when it says, love your family, 
you do that. But when it said love your enemy, you know, you need more power than what's in you to do that. And so you rely by faith on Jesus. So that's what we're looking at when we're talking about changing the world and knowing that God's hand is upon us as we devote ourselves to the Scripture. Then did you notice what happened? Verse 27, chapter 7. Here's how Ezra responded to King Artaxerxes. By the way, he's, a, he's probably a, a minister in the king's court. He has access to the king. Not everybody had access to ask these things. And as the king granted what he requested, as God had convinced the king to do that, and we see what happened. Ezra responds this way. Praise the Lord. He gave credit where credit was due. The God of our ancestors who made the king want to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Remember, he stopped all rebuilding. And now God has changed his heart. And praise him for demonstrating such unfailing love to me. That's the Old Testament word for the New Testament word grace. That's a, the Hebrew word hesed. That's a covenant love and unfailing steadfast love and undeserved love. God doing for Ezra, God doing for you what you cannot do for yourselves. You depending on God and understanding that God is not an angry God as Jonathan Edwards got people's attention with. We'll see in just a moment what he, he proclaimed at the end of that that sermon. But God is a gracious God who doesn't want people to suffer or be destroyed. He doesn't want to destroy them himself. He doesn't want them to be destroyed by their own choices and their, their own sin. He wants them to walk in a real honest relationship with him. Depending on him transform us. The Apostle Paul years later would write about it this way. Don't conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is. What God wants. His good pleasing and perfect will Romans 12, 2 is where he talks about that. It'd be a great verse to memorize. Just knowing that something happens when you devote yourself to the Word. And what happens is what he talks about here at the end. He says, I praise him for demonstrating such unfailing love, that grace to me by honoring me before the king, his council, and all his mighty nobles. I felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord my God was on me. I felt what? encouraged he had the courage to do what he needed to do he didn't have the king's protection he had the king of kings capital K protection he knew who he was relying on he knew who he was trusting in and because he did he had courage now, courage is not the absence of fear in Ezra or anyone else. Courage is moving forward in spite of your fear. 
courage is moving forward because you know there's something bigger and better than your fear. When we think about these big things we've been looking at in the hand of God, changing the world, that gets a little nerve-wracking. That gets a little idealistic. That gets a little out there. But when we talk about it in terms that we can digest, committing ourselves to prayer and the Word and the encouragement of other people, that's why it's so valuable to gather. It's hard to do the one another's online, is it not? To encourage one another, to support one another, to love one another, to pray for one another. To do all the things that the scripture calls us to do, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How do you do that virtually? Now, there are ways, and you can do it if you're watching us virtually, but it takes a little more effort. But when we come together in this place, we're seeking to bring courage to one another because of our mutual faith in the one true God. Now, here's what I want to end with today. I want you to hear the end of that sermon because Jonathan uh, Edwards was used in a mighty way by God uh, to bring about this revival. And here's what he says at the end of that sermon. Now, remember, it's sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he had, he'd railed them over the coals and said, hey, you need to turn or you're about to burn. And so at the end of that, though, he says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown open the door of mercy, wide open, and stands in the door, calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and are now, are now in a happy state with hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind on such a day to see so many others feasting while you are perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have caused to mourn for sorrow of heart and how for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such condition? Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Well, that's a great way to end the sermon, isn't it? Everyone who is out of Christ fly from the wrath of God. As the worship team comes up, I just wonder, if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry at all about the coming of the Lord because you know you're part of the kingdom, you know you're walking in relationship with Him, but if you're not, in Christ, then there's still that element of sinners in the hands of an angry God. The good news is this is a great opportunity that the doors of mercy are, are flung open wide and you can come to know Him in these moments as we invite you. If you've never entered into a real relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to get that right. You need to make sure that you've surrendered your heart to Him, that He's now the boss, that He's calling the shot, that you're praying according to His will, 
trying to line your life up with his design, his desires, because whatever you do is going to pass away when you pass away. But whatever he does through you is going to live forever. And what he wants to do through you first is save your soul so that you can be used by him to have an impact on this world. You want to change things? Draw a little circle around yourself. Let God change you. You surrender to him. That's where it starts. I'd invite you to do that as we pray together and then sing together. Father, we ask you in these moments to use us by your almighty hand to change this world. And Lord, we ask you to start by changing us. Lord, help us line up with what's in your word, what's in your will. Lord, we don't even know sometimes because we're not in it. We don't understand all that you require of us or want of us. We don't understand all the blessings and provision and joy and, and grace and mercy and faith and peace that's available to us because of what you've done. So we get in there and know in your word. Father, I pray for your people that they not just hear your word proclaimed from this pulpit, but that they get in it themselves and so that you're speaking to them not just one-seventh of their week, two-sevenths, but all week long. Change us. Because there's a lot need changing in our world. Your world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.